out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. And as you know, we love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of the musician, singer, novelist, writer, and an amazingly prolific creative person. It is the one and only Paul Hampshire, also A.K.A.B., who was in many bands, including the Dance Society, and also went on to form other groups, including Get In The Fear, Into A Circle Panache, and also Futon. It's true. Um, anyway, this is the interview. He's in New York. I'm not. So um, just to say that towards the end, we start talking about a release by Cherry Red Records. Um, about Sheffield, well, on Sheffield. It's a full CD box set, so we do veer off slightly. So if you wonder what we're talking about, that's that particular compilation. I think it's slightly clear. And also at the end of this interview, I'm going to play you the song that he talks about, Frozen Heart, which is absolutely stunning. So anyway, this is the interview. And um, incredible human being, that's all I've got to say. Anyway, this is fantastic. Stuff. So um, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Paul, we are waiting. Take it away. Um, I, I, I kind of had um, several in different forms. The first exposure where, where I, I kind of got music was was probably uh, in in a youth club. And, and it's a bit like there's a movie by Lane Casella called A Northern Soul. And I walked in and I just heard this Northern Soul music. And right. I just instantly, it struck this chord with me and, and, and it really moved me. But then later, I Alice Cooper was, was the first idol that I had, where I put kind of an image with, with, with the music as well. Yes. And it, it kind of formulated that kind of um, uh trajectory on, on, on music as well. Um, and then that was replaced by Bowie uh, during the very early kind of Ziggy, when, uh, you know, early 70s. Yes. Was it, um, was it, was Al Cooper, Alice Cooper, was that um, Schools Out? And No, it was Killer. Uh, the first one I got, the first one I got was the Killer album. Just as it came out, I bought it because I saw it in the record shop and I just loved the snake on the cover and um and and I just loved the album and I remember taking it one day at our school you had the kids had to take something special and I took this album to school and I remember everyone was laughing at me because there's a real childlike uh the the graphics it says Alice Cooper killer and it's really badly written right and, they, and I remember all the kids ridiculing me saying that I couldn't write um because it was so badly written <laughs> Yes. Um, so whereabouts yeah. did you grow up? Because I'm, I'm in Barnsley. Barnsley, blimey! Yeah, I, I was born in Barnsley, um, and in a very rough kind of uh, council estate. Um, in yeah, and I grew up in the kind of seventies there. Yes. So Barn, yeah. yes. So were you? Did you come from a musical creative yeah. family at all? Not at all. Not 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 even slightly. Right. I, 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 yeah. I. I don't know how I got lost in, I got lost in music at a very, very early age. Um, first of all, I would acquire music, like uh, like the, the stuff that my mother and father would, would be playing at home, stuff like 
uh, Jim Reeves and Scylla Black and Burt Bacharach stuff. And then I would hitch onto my brother's uh, record collection, which was kind of Northern Soul. And he, he was a skinhead. So I got exposed to a lot of the Trojan reggae stuff, which I loved um, as well. Um, but apart, aside from that, there's no musical or artistic leanings whatsoever. Yes. My God, that's quite amazing. Though I must admit, when you've mentioned Jim Reeves, I do remember my dad had the greatest hits of Jim Reeves that I heard quite a lot. And at a push, I could still probably remember some of the lyrics. I'm that that damaged by the whole experience. But <laughs> I do love Scylla Black. I think that's one of the first songs that I really mm. got excited by was she did. She'd had a show called Scylla. Yeah. Yes, and there I was remember. a song, the song called Step Inside Love, which yeah. I thought was so dramatic. And then I found out it was written by either Paul McCartney. McCartney and John Lennon. And I thought it was, oh. wasn't it? it? It makes sense, doesn't it? Apparently, when, when I was like a tiny, tiny babe in, 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 in a little pushchair, I like maybe two, three years old, uh, they would play Silla Black and anyone who had a heart. And I would apparently just sing one word, which was uh, so. When it goes, knowing I love you, so. Yes. And I would just come in for the so, uh, and that, that would be all I would sing throughout the whole song. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, I, I suppose with Step Inside Love, it did have that kind of, that you know, like the Pixies and Nirvana. Mm. It had that kind of, you know, the kind of quiet, dramatic, you know, mm. tension all the way through it. And I can see that, um, yes, Frank Black, Kurt Cobain, you know, probably were highly influenced by that. I'm sure they weren't. But then, <laughs> as, as the 70s, were you a bit too young for punk? Did punk slightly pass you um, by? No, no, totally not. I I, I got into punk very, at a very early age, um, in in about 19... I, I must have been about 15, 16. And as soon as punk came along, I'm like, I'm having this. It was total music for outlaws. The rest of the, of the kids were all wearing these really wide soul bags northern uh, oxford bags they were called and i was straight into the 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 um the shot the drainpipe trousers yes. which you could still get as remnants from from the 60s in some army and military stores so i would get those the jeans and stuff but then we would literally be chased through the town center if we were if we weren't wearing the soul boys would attack us and chase us um there was just a, a couple of us that be, that were punks Maybe yes. the whole, whole town, maybe six. And um, but we we would be spat upon, we would be chased through the town. Um, but it was that was great because that that became the catalyst where which which basically uh, and the inspiration for me to get the fuck out of that town. Um <laughs> which, which I did as soon as I was old enough. Yes. I, I, moved, I moved down. Well, I started hanging out in Sheffield. I, I knew that I couldn't hang out in my own town because we would get beaten up for wearing like punk stuff, like drainpipe trousers. Um, and so we, we then would go to Sheffield uh, and there we were hanging out with, with, within the most amazing music scene. It was like the, it was the birth of the industrial music scene. Um, yes. So these bands that were around, like the, the Human League hadn't made it famous by then, Cabaret Voltaire hadn't. So, you know, you'd go to places and they would be there and, and stuff. and the first band I went, went in, we did a little demo in Western Works. Um, I think it was Western Works. It was the Human League studio anyway. Right. And we recorded a little four-track demo there and, and met them. So it was really in influential, seminal, formative, really, you know, it was an exciting time. 
Yes, absolutely. Sheffield, I know Cherry Cherry Red Records recently brought out a five CD, you know, box set of the Sheffield. Did they? Yes. Oh wow, I didn't know that. I thought so, I need to, need to get that. Yeah, they they did one on Manchester that had seven CDs. Then Liverpool. Uh-huh. Then there's one on Scotland, but then they've gone for Sheffield as well, which um, yeah, it's it's good. And um, yes, they've they've been doing a lot of kind of stuff, clearing up the uh, archives. I love Cherry Red Records. So then mm-hmm. you know, as as we come as we trucked on through the seventies, we you know seventy nine Thatcher gets in suddenly. The political mm. landscape changes and then there's the Falkland Wars then Greenham Common the miners mm. strike so what was your kind of you know the the kind of great change from the the sort of post that was the punk then post-punk and then sort of slipping into the 80s with I suppose a certain amount of electronic music and and sort of new romantic kind of stuff I kind of loved I loved electronic music on both sides of, of the 80s so I, I was obsessed and I loved things like Throbbing Gristle uh, and Cabaret Voltaire, and um, and and I was in this band that were kind of influenced by them, um, but it's a bit a bit punky, a bit wearing makeup as well. It was on the cusp of change when everything was changing, um, but then I had a complete upside down uh, change in that I so I was with a band which formed the nucleus of the Dance Society. Um, with, with uh, the singer Steve Rawlings. We were in a band that were called Why. We changed the name to Dance Society, but I left straight after because we'd done a gig with a band in Leeds at the F Club that were called the Cuddly Toys, who were this punk glam band. And um, we became friends with them when we started writing to each other. And they, the drummer and the guitarist left their band and the drummer decided to form a band which was going to become big in Japan. And he wrote me this letter and said, we need a keyboard player. Would you be interested in moving down to London, joining this band, which are going to become big in Japan? And I'm like, this is my ticket out of here. Yes. I'm, go- I'm off. So I, I, I kind of moved down to London, uh, joined this band. And within six months, we were big in Japan. I mean, it was a complete hype situation. Right. Um, I was a bit confused because there is the Liverpool band, aren't there, called? Yes. But, yeah. But what was your band name? The, ba- the band, it was dreadful. It, the, we were called Panache, but it was completely fabricated. Right. It was like from start to finish, like this Japanese management company got these kind of like um, musicians together. Put them. We didn't know each other. It was like it's like, it like going back to the fifties, where they'd completely fabricate a band. I knew the drummer Paddy, who's I still I'm in contact with Paddy today. He's he's lovely, but the rest of the band I didn't know. So this management company put us together and said, "You're going to record your. You can write your own songs, but you have to record these songs. We're going to put you in the studio. We we've got a deal waiting with Toshiba EMI. That's all good to go. We'll do photo sessions with." the top photographers get you on the front covers and then you'll tour Japan. And it was all laid out in front of us, but we had no say artistic uh, uh, control whatsoever. We knew that when we were doing it. And I was young at the time. I was like 18. I'm like, you know what? I- I'm going to go along with this. Yes. And even though I was listening to like, you know, experimental music and, and then stuff like YMO and things, I, I went along with it because I-, I was enamored by this, you know, by the cameras and the success and everything like that. It really did happen. We were massive there. 
you know, if uh, we, we couldn't walk down the streets there in Tokyo without getting chased and stuff, it, it was like Beatlemania. We were so we went, we would did nothing in the UK whatsoever. But in Japan, I mean, I would come home with you know with magazines like thirty magazines with me on the cover. It was insane. Yes. It was really close. It that lasted about a year. So, so, the, but the music was really dreadful. I hated it. I didn't like it at all. I wasn't into it. And yeah, you recorded these two albums: "Dance at the End of Time" and "Heartbreak mm, School." So, yeah, yeah. I didn't play on the second one. I played keyboards on the first one, and but then my friend in the band was the drummer Paddy, and he the rest of the band kind of kicked him out. And my big regret is that I didn't leave with him. I was going to, but then Paddy, the drummer, said to me, he said, listen, my uncle, his uncle owned the management company. Right. And he, and he said, don't leave, because the band, even though I was the, 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 uh, the keyboard player, I was the prettiest. <laughs> so <laughs> so they, 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 um, I'm no longer, so I can say that. Uh, so they, they would focus on me, and he said, you can't leave, because if you do everything will will fall to bits because they've only focused on you, not the rest of the band. So I said, okay, I'll give it another year. And I said, but listen to the management company and the record company, this music is dire. I can't play on it anymore. I was into like Patti Smith, Robin Gristle. I said, I can't do it. And they said, no worries. We'll get someone else to do it. You just mime. And I'm like, yeah, I can do that. So so the second album, I didn't play anything on it. Right. All. My God. Who was your, the stylist for this band? Because you it's quite an extraordinary group of people. There's the Mick uh, Ronson lookalike. There's this sort of yeah. Johnny Thunders, New York Dolls. Mm. There's there's a guy who looks a bit too old, but he's got... Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. The, it, it, it was really messed up. There wasn't a, a stylist. I mean, I was hanging out in the clubs in London in, in like, you know, the, the kind of... Uh, was it the Ritz? Uh, it was like, uh, no, it was like Studio 21. The, the Blitz had closed down. It was Cha-Chas. It was Club for Heroes. It was all those. Like Strange had stopped doing Blitz and he was doing Club for Heroes. So there was that one. There was um, Cha-Chas, which was Behind Heaven, that Scarlet did. Right. Um, so we were in all those clubs. And at the time, there was a big theatrical company called Foxes, still big today, a wardrobe company. They for some reason, decided to shut down big warehouses. So they sold off all the clothes for like next to nothing. So you'd got this amazing wardrobe of clothes from right through the ages, from medieval costumes to Victorian costumes, Edwardian costumes. They sold them off like for peanuts. So we would go there and, and buy those and we'd all wear them. So a lot of them were from, from Fox's, a theatrical costume. Place. Yes. My God! So you're you you obviously were into a slightly darker sound. I mean, yeah. oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't get any further away from from what I was doing and what the band were releasing. What I was interested in, you couldn't get any further away. It was polar opposites. Yes. But for me, it was a great learning curve because when I went out to Japan the first time, I, I we didn't have any English representation, so I went alone. There was just me, um, which was quite. Uh, scary and daunting. I'd never been on an airplane. The first time I ever went on an airplane was flying alone to Japan uh, on my own. I didn't even know how to check in at the airport. And there was quite a funny story when we landed, when I landed in Tokyo, because um, 
the management company was supposed to grab me off the plane and take me around the back of the airport, but it got lost in translation. So I got off the plane, went through customs, got my suitcase, and I was with the regular passengers. They didn't really have tourists. This is 1981. Mm. they didn't really have many regular tourists going to japan back in those days so there was me and the people getting disembarking from the plane and back then in in narita airport in tokyo there was just a big glass wall separating the people the people that had flown and the regular people that were waiting for them and i could see this sea of faces uh, uh, uh mostly girls who just suddenly started going fucking crazy and screaming and, and I, I had my little trolley with my old battered suitcase on it. And, and I literally looked behind me because I thought there was going to be some famous person behind me, like Bowie or someone that they were screaming <laughs> for. And then I realized that, no, I saw, they, I then realized they had big pictures of me. So they were screaming for me and, and, I, and I froze like a, like a rabbit in the headlights because I thought, what the fuck? What, I can't walk into out into that yeah and and so i literally froze there and then within seconds from both sides of me from behind these these airport security guys just grabbed me and took me back around customs into the back of the airport and then they threw me in the back of this van where the management team and interpreters were all waiting for me yes Uh, my god that's surreal surreal. what's what's kind of i mean I, i did an interview with Oh, the poet. Oh, yeah, the million pound poet, Murray Lachlan Young, who who mm. sort of, this was in the early 90s. He suddenly kept famous because EMI said he's a million pound and they hyped him up and he got all the attention. And then the management from the company, the record company, just kind of completely left him, you know, just ditched mm. him. And it kind of completely ruined him. And he said, mm. what happened that you, you, you just kind of left in limbo land completely yes. emotionally done in. And yes. He said yeah. he just kind of bought, he built him he built himself a, a bar in the wood and just lived in the wood for a few years to kind of get his head back together. Right. You know, so I, I, what was it like for you then at this age to suddenly well, be catapulted into stardom without any kind of band? The thing that saved me was the fact that they were completely uh, <laughs> ripping me off. I didn't I didn't make I was on the dole. So I, I, when, I'm, when I was in, in the UK, I had no money. I was literally on the dole. And then I would go to Japan and be, be this massive pop star in Japan where everything, they'd look after everything. But as soon as I got back to the UK, they weren't, they, they, I kept saying, where's the money, where's the money? And they were like, we're investing it in the future. We're investing it in your future. And after a year and a half, I said, listen, there is no future unless you give me some money. Yes. I'm not continuing. I said, look, my mum's bored of seeing me on the front cover of magazines now. I've done enough tours of Japan. That doesn't thrill me anymore. I'm, I need some money now. Yes. The mu- I can't stand doing the music. And then they said, OK, we'll give you. I said, I'm leaving the band. And they said, if you stayed for one more tour and if you say that you played on the album that you didn't, we'll give you like a few grand. And I said, yeah, fine, I'll take it. So I took the money, but it wasn't, it was, it was literally about 2000 pounds. Yes. So, so because of that, I was so hungry. I'd had this stardom and I, I'd learned how to do interviews on TV. I'd learned how to do radio interviews. I'd learned how to conduct myself in magazine interviews. I'd done all that. It's like an apprenticeship in, 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 you know, being in the music business. I'd done that, but I, I still had this hunger, A, for musical satisfaction and for B, money. 
Yes, so. money. This is true. We we there wasn't much of it in the early eighties because a lot of the bands that I, I suppose I became quite obsessive in the eighties. I mean, a lot of them had that kind of unemployed period of yes. job seekers lands, enterprise uh-huh. land schemes. Right. If you if you had a thousand pound in your bank account, you could mm. be on the enterprise land scheme. So it gave everyone, you know, and people reminisce about it. Not with rose tinted mm. glasses, but you know, in the well, it was quite handy that you could get your you know, 30 or 40 pound a week dull money, then you could get get your housing benefit, um, the mm-hmm. council tax paid, and and you could see it being a band and and sort of live in quite a um, rundown place. But if you had mates and you were making music, it made life good. Because in the because mm-hmm. with the 80s, as we sort of trundled through it, for me, 83, 82, 83 is a major moment because yeah. myths appear and mm-hmm. suddenly this kind of you know the jingly jangly world of indie pop suddenly mm-hmm. reared its head. So what was it like for you after the your initial world of panache, which, um, mm. yes, what, what then happens in the next phase? This is when you become part of, yes, is it, is it, is it getting the fear or into a circle is your next? It's, 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 in, it's getting the fear, but before I got to getting the fear, there was a kind of departure moment from the Japan scene where I, I reached a crossroads because Warner Brothers, WEA in London, had heard, had seen me in all these Japanese magazines. So they were interested. Uh, and as was a guy called David Claridge, who ran a company called The Mobile Suit that had these artists, international artists, like some Japanese artists, and then an Indian artist called Monsoon, who had a hit with Ever So Lonely, and a German artist. They both approached me. And so Warner Brothers wanted me to team up with Malcolm McLaren who had a project uh, with, with an artist called, it was the Western Country thing with She Sheriff. And he it hadn't worked. So he was looking for someone to front this new thing that he was doing. Yes. So that was that, so that was one thing I was speaking to them about, about teaming up with McLaren and fronting this thing, which eventually became, he did himself. It became like the Buffalo Girls thing. Yes. So I had I had meetings with them. And even though I loved, you know, the pistols and all the stuff they'd done before and the clothes, I knew that I didn't really want to be a puppet like that. And they were acting, you know, he wanted like something ridiculous, like 50 percent of all earnings and stuff. And I'm like, no, I've been ripped up once uh, as well. So I'm, I'm, I wasn't happy about that. But then the other person, David Claridge, he was into all things Asian, which I was, uh, you know, South Asian, like Japan uh, and um, and Singapore and um, Thailand, which I was intrigued by, too. Uh, and and he, we put, he said, look, if, you, if we do stuff together, I can put you in the studio with people like Bill Nelson, who I loved. Uh, and so I, I had this big decision to make. And, and I went with David Claridge. Yes. Who, who then put me into studios with a few musicians like Blamange. Uh, we did some work together. It didn't quite work as we wanted it to do. And then with, with Bill Nelson. And so that was all going kind of okay. <laughs> and, and, and then it takes this bizarre turn. Because as well as being a manager, this guy, David Claridge, he was also a puppeteer. And he did this amazing TV show called Mooncat with Beryl Reed which was this fantastic kids TV show, really amazing. Anyway, so he's managing me, we're, we're putting stuff together, we're doing demos, it's, you know, it's all going really well. 
and he starts dating this girl that I'm living, sharing a flat with, who, who uh, she had a clothing company. And he came and said, listen, I've got this new idea for a puppet. I'm going to present it to TV to pitch it. Uh, can we, you know, will you help me put the puppet together? So she said, yeah. So they're making this puppet in my front room. And I'm like, that puppet looks fucking shit. It's never going to do anything. <laughs> it's rubbish. It looks rubbish. And, and the puppet became an international celebrity and I didn't. Um, the puppet, that puppet was Roland Rat. Oh. Yeah. And and so so my career uh, was stolen by Roland Rat. Roland um, Rat, God, so, yes. Yeah, the Rat became really successful, so he he kind of dropped all his other projects, including the Fetish Club that we were doing, me, and several other things. All got got tossed aside for Roland Rat. And, yeah. and so anyway, but towards the end of that, I'd met um, the the Psychic TV bunch like Genesis, Peter Christofferson, David Tibet, um, um, John Balance, who I know as Jeff. So I'd started hanging out with, with all the um, with all those people. And that that's that was the music that I loved. And that they we were on the same page. Um, yes. So we very quickly became friends and and I just yeah, those were my formative years, I, I would say really. Did you meet a woman called Dorothy? Is it Dorothy Max? Or? Yeah, I, I, I met Dorothy. Not, not a lot because people would come, come in and out at that time. And, I, and I, I, I'm sure I met her. Um, and what about Marco that, Peroni? Did you meet him as well? I, I had a meeting with him, but that was with David Claridge before, before right. um, the Psychic TV days. But I did meet him in his flat in um, Baker Street, was it? Yes, I mean, he'd yeah. obviously done all his adamant stuff. And, and I mean, you mentioned Monsoon because they had that hit, you know, ever so mm. long. That was on the label. That, Sheila that, that Chandry, who, yeah, yeah. Was, who was... I love that record. It's amazing. It's, an, mm. it's a classic, isn't it? So, yes. my God, you're, you're sort of crammed in. When did you, I mean, did you, at that stage, had you discovered your voice, your singing voice? No, at this? no, I hadn't. Before that, I was playing keyboards through, throughout the whole Japanese, through the dance society, Japanese stuff uh, I was doing playing keyboards and it was only when I teamed up with David Claridge and he said and he said you you should be singing you need to front this now yes so we we, we put this whole you know uh character together that we were going to call B which which is how I got the nickname B um and we put that all together but but my voice it, it was a very it took a long time for me to find that because I, I don't have I'm not one of those people with a natural talent for for singing at all I, I don't have a strong voice I don't have a big voice um so it took me a long time to to get really comfortable with that yeah that, that was a major thing um the the writing lyrically I I've you know Writing is the thread that runs through everything I do, whether it's whether it's music, whether it's radio, whether it's, you know, anything. It's a writing is the thread that runs through everything, which I, I'm, I'm kind of a natural at. But singing, no. Yes, because was with going back to Roland Rat, was that part of that comedy duo called Raw Sex with Roland Riblon? Was he part of that? Or was that a no. Yeah, I think that's totally different. I mean, it's it's the, it's yeah. Uh, there's no connection there. Roland Rat was Channel Four. 
right god i i i, I, I didn't follow the roman rat career that much actually mm. but <laughs> <laughs> yes it's, it all starts you know when you start good. thinking this is only 40 years ago you start thinking, i know i know, you know pieces of it I don't know. make sense but then yeah. as the 80s progressed and obviously mm. you know david claridge went for it for the roman rack the rat yeah. The rat. I suppose you're never going to have an issue. They weren't going to have <laughs> differences, were they? Really? Um, uh-huh. Yes. So then, was it getting into the fear? Was that the next yep. getting yes. the fear? Was this... getting the fear came next? Yeah. There was a brief moment where where I did a little solo project that Genesis kept pushing me to do called "Be the Process," but that never really happened. So I, I, I thought, and people said, "B, you need a band. You need you need a band around you, like to to bounce off." So at the time I was working in, I was still doing the fetish club. Uh, and one night I, w- I was doing the door of the club. And one night my dear, dear friend, Jane Rowling, who was basically running some bazaar, turned up with this amazing character who later, much later, maybe two years later, became Zodiac Mindwalk, a guy called Mark Manning, who at the time was doing a magazine called Flexipop and, and, and album covers and stuff, uh, art stuff. Anyway, Mark said, oh, my mate's looking for a singer for their band. You should get in touch. And I said, oh, I'm looking for a band. So he gave me the number of, um, I think it was Aki from Seven Defcoat. And I, and I didn't know who Seven Defcoat were because uh, I wasn't into that, that scene, really. Yes. I was into more experimental stuff. Anyway, so um, I called him up and he said, yeah, we're in Bradford. Come up for an audition. And I said, well, I'm going to see my parents in Barnsley, so I'll, I will. So I went up and and we we kind of got on as people, you know, they they, they were really sweet. Um, later, I realized that we, we should never have been in the same band because our musical, again, our musical aspirations were very different. So, yes, because um, obviously there had been, the you talk about the fetish club, but I suppose there had been the Batcave, hadn't there, and the golf scene and yeah, things like that. So it was, that was, was the, just about to happen, I think. it. I'm not sure if it, I think it hadn't happened yet, but it was just about to happen yes. as we formed Getting the Fear. Did you, yes. Yeah. So were you embracing your inner goth side at this stage? No, no. I mean, it's, oh, can I, can I make a full confession? Now is the only time in my life that I've been comfortable with the word goth. And, and that's only happened in the last six months because I've noticed that being, I'm in America at the moment, and being over here and it's, it's like all this stigma that was associated with that word in the 80s has disappeared and dissipated. And there's this whole new generation of people that 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 link themselves to goth that I that I can really kind of associate, get understand more. Uh, and my my aversion to it wasn't anything to do with the people that were goth, the music that was goth or the clubs that they went to. It was because of the People like the music press used it as a slur. So it was like an insult. Right. And a lot of the people that were into music that I would be into would would see our audience who were fucking lovely people. I I love still today I'm in contact with a lot of them, but they were they were goth. And and they would really dis everything that we were doing musically, they would it would be dissed yes. as being goth. So it was a negative connotation. And and I, now I realize I should have gone, oh, fuck you, and, you know, and, and own it. But 
at the time I would be like, we're not goth. And we'd go to great lengths not to come across as goth. Um, yeah, no, I kind of relate to that because, I mean, I, I sort of was very snobby about the, the golf mm, scene. I don't yeah. think, it, I'm not sure if it was the, I don't know what it was, but it was something like, oh, no, I don't really, I'm not into mm. golf. And it's only through probably doing this show that I've, I've interviewed quite a lot of people from mm. bands and thought, God, mm. you're really nice. And they actually yeah. were good. And, and But I think when you're young and the 80s, it was full of being angsty, wasn't it? It was very... Mm you know, yes. and sort of tribal. There was a very tribal quality to, to this whole it? period. So there was the, the new romantics, there's the goth, there was the indies, there was mm. new, new Paisley, there was, you know, yeah. I don't know, shoegazing. You know, there was all these things that you kind of felt like, is that your tribe or not your tribe? Mm. Does the enemy agree with it? Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, yeah. Was it, it, was it, it, <laughs> you had to be like careful. It? Yes. Yeah, I mean, exactly. But but now I don't give a fuck about any of that. I mean, people like, you know, they either like it or they don't. And if they don't like it, that's fine. But back in those days, you had to, I mean, it, that was very interesting. I The documentary I heard with Felt and Lawrence, when when he said the reason that the Felt didn't make it was because John Peel simply didn't like them. And I'm like, you know what? That's fucking true. I mean, I can really, you know, it could, I also, with our stuff, I mean, I never sent him anything because uh, I, I was never a, a John Peel head. I realised he did a lot of service to the music community. And apart from when he debuted Bowie's album Low, which he was the first person to play, and he played it back to back, I wasn't a real... I loved Radio Luxembourg when I was a kid. I would tune into that. Yes. Uh, but for me, uh, I was never really a Peel head. And I realised that, he, you know... He, it, you know, he deserves the right to be called a saint for all that he did. But I think there's a flip side to that as well. And bands that were absolutely brilliant, like felt that suffered from that. It's just, it is a bit of a shame. Yes, I know. There was, I think that the thing about the that period is that there was these gatekeepers, mm. which made it kind of easier, but also potentially harder. I know that doesn't make sense, but, but you know. It does. That... It, it really <laughs> makes, no, I, I really get what you're saying about the gatekeepers. And and they you know they were like godlike. Yes, because you had the three weekly music papers. You mm-hmm. had John Bill, possibly Kidgens, and Janice Long, mm. um, and they were kind of so influential. Because I mean, daytime mm. radio was just kind of horrendous. But um, but yeah, those people. But now it's difficult, difficult, different because there isn't anybody curating all this music. It's just no. all out there, and it's just like it's too overwhelming. So I relied yeah. on John Peel. You know, I put my little trusty TDK. Yeah. in record it and then get excited by you know anything from public enemy to the bundu boys or gregory isaac yeah and- i i mean he did yeah i mean i think the world he did the world such a great service he really did in in my mind i think i just wish there were more jump heels but i don't think i don't think we allowed that there to be more than him for example you know, I think Janice Long was the most, one of the most underrated, underrated people on the music scene. And whether it was, it be, well, maybe not because she was a woman, well, maybe it was actually, because Annie Nightingale too has, has really pushed down so many doors and fought the cause for so many genres yeah. of music. I mean, I loved Annie Nightingale. I really, really loved her. On a Sunday but, evening, we should have been doing mm, our homework and yeah. Yeah, voice. <laughs> and 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 you know, I I remember Janice once saying to me, she said, you know, everyone fucking thinks that I only got where I am because of my brother Keith, 
And, oh, she yeah. said, and she said, you know what? Keith did fuck off to help me. And it's true. She she worked in, as it was, wasn't she DJing in Amsterdam, doing little clubs herself? And she really, you know, learned the skill herself. Yes. It didn't open any doors for her. No. Um, and um, yeah, it was just, it, yeah, having those people. I mean, even, I mean, I didn't listen to it, but Tommy Vance with his heavy metal show, I mean, they, they were kind of important because the BBC mm. had that kind of reach, whereas, yes. you know, a lot of other things just didn't. So, mm. yeah, I know there's been one or two people I've interviewed who, you know, don't feel that much love for John Peel because, I mean, oh, people I, like, I do. I, I wouldn't say that I don't feel love for him at all because I think he did an amazing. I mean, I, I love the fall, so I, I think <laughs> and and I love I love that you know he would play reggae stuff as well and you know, and one can't expect him to be perfect anyway and get everything, can we? No. I just my thing is there should have been more John Peel. Yes, I kind of yeah, absolutely. I mean, because there's people like Danielle Dax. I don't think she ever got a play or any mention, and mm. people yeah. like Momus who also didn't get a play or a mention either. And mm. you know, they were kind of important artists who yeah, sort of mm. had to sort of fight their own way. Whereas, I mean, I suppose I looked at it as a very easy way to you know pick up what was happening. Yeah. You know, and then every city and town in the UK had an alternative indie night, didn't they? Of some description that you could yeah. go along to three, see three bands for £1.50 and think, oh, that was good. But you only went because you could have heard them on John Peel and mm. it gave you that kind of confidence to go yeah. and see them. So, um, no, he did a great service, yeah. So then, 85, the mid-80s, we're really okay. dropping into, into your next one, Into a Circle, on Abstract. Yes. So what happened was that basically we, we did, we getting the fear, uh, signed a massive deal with RCA Records. Uh, it was massive. It was like something like three quarters of a million pound deal, uh, which you would think, right, that's it. But actually, that's when all the trouble started. Um, because what happened was, so we got this big deal with RCA. And literally three weeks after that deal, the head of the company, David Betteridge, left and took with him 60% of the staff that were good. So here was getting the fear with a, a big cash deal with signed to for five albums to this record company where there was no, the staff that were working, there was no one that was any good. Yes. <laughs> and, and so we went through a succession of A&R guys over a period of uh, a year, uh, every few months, there'd be a new A&R guy. He'd come and he'd say, everything you've done before, we, it's not right, we'll redo it. And so we'd have to go back in the studio, record everything again. And that kept happening and happening. So, so basically we had money, but we couldn't do anything. We were, we were limited uh, and we couldn't even get anything released because every, every, every A&R man that would come after would negate anything that had been done before. So it was all trashed. Basically. Yes. So what it was they, hell. What were they trying to push you into kind of image wise? They wanted us to become like the Eurythmics or Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Right. Not Kajagugu. Uh, no, 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 no. They, 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 were, they were intelligent enough to know that that, you know, that kind of w wouldn't work. It would, but they, they thought that we could become like uh, some risque, you know, uh, Eurythmics or something like that. Because they were RCA. They, record company people on the whole back then just knew what was in front of them. They couldn't look any further than what was in the top 20. 
Right. And what was in front of them. And uh, the Eurythmics were signed to RCA. So they instantly put us in with their people, which did not work at all. But within the band, we didn't know what we wanted to be. You know, I wanted to be like a Patti Smith, Robin Gristle. Buzz wanted to be Haircut 100. Um, Aki wanted to do his fundamental stuff. And and Barry and I were, were on the same page. I mean, he, he was into like Kate Bush but and Patti Smith. <laughs> so, so there was a bit of a crossover. So it wasn't working. We knew it wasn't working. We decided, even though we were still getting on as people, musically we realized we never could so we just thought let's split so Barry and I went off and did into a circle and we decided at that point that we wouldn't we didn't want to sign to a major record company we would stick to independent record companies yes big mistake yeah I I must admit doing this show <laughs> big mistake huge mistake worse they're worse they're like big record companies without the money <laughs> they were, it was fucking dreadful it was so bad and you know what? They they still cling on to stuff that we did back then and, and won't give it back to us. And and it, yeah, it was really, really tough. It was, um, yeah, because I remember that this was on Abstract and there was a mm. um, single that was done by Mark Armand and Sally Timms, wasn't there, called, um, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It was a great, they did a great collaboration. This, time, really? this, this house is a house of trouble or something like that. And mm. I remember there was a really good roster, weren't there? You had... You know, the bomb party, the three John. Mm, yeah. You know, there was a lot of really good yeah. on there, as well as yeah. new model army. So you must yeah. have thought we're we're with our people at the moment. Yeah, we did. But but we it didn't it didn't work out. But also we were kind of changing too because we were we were we were going beyond this indie pastoral guitar stuff into more kind of sequenced electronic as well, which is when we we hooked up with Larry Steinbercheck from Bron- Bronsky Beat and, and brought him in to do one of the singles and to write some stuff with him, which was which was the direction that we were going. Uh, and that didn't really fit what Abstract wanted us to do as well. Uh, so that, that was kind of an issue. The one thing I will say that they were really great, they let us do Cover-wise, they gave us carte blanche to do whatever we wanted, cover-wise. Yes. So that was a good thing. That but was blimey. a good thing. Because I think there was a really good, there was a lot of good bands on that label. There was another one called The Janitors. Yeah. I, I do remember speaking to one of the members, and, mm. and he and he's still he's still quite sore about the whole experience. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I let I, I let stuff go and I just think, you know, it was business and it's done with and I don't hang on to any resentments like that about things. Uh, otherwise, you just get too obsessed with it. And I, I, I want to focus on now yes. and what's coming up. So I don't I don't get really, oh, they should have done this. They should. I'm like, it happened. Move on. And I don't let the music that, that we make uh, be affected by that. Um, really otherwise yeah. you get bitter yeah so how did your because you were together for about four years as a band yes, weren't you we were and and it was all it was all going great we we were kind of like we were apart from the record company side of stuff the music writing we were getting we were we were, we were developing as a band and we also got into doing image stuff like uh 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 producing kind of booklets and artwork and stuff we did our own t-shirts we did we were into the the merch from a creative angle as well 
and and we would do uh we would project slides and so we we I'd do all the artwork for the slides uh for uh when we played live um so it was all going great and then <laughs> and then um I kind of went away for a few months over to Southeast Asia and and I kind of like I I just thought I I needed most of the my kind of mentors and people in life that I look up towards, like uh, Brian Geisen, Burroughs and, and Nico, they all spent a large part of their life living outside the country that they were born in. Yes. And uh, even though London is like a different country compared to Barnsley, I knew I wanted more. So I kind of wanted to move over to Southeast Asia and Barry didn't. So we thought we'd give it a break. And that break turned into like 30 years. Right. Oh, no. Yes. Did you, how did you, I mean, because you did a tour with with the, the famous Annie. Um, oh, Annie Anxiety. Yeah. Oh, yes. I, I spoke to her the other day. I love her. Yeah, I did an interview with her probably about 18 months ago. And her, her vocal was just, I just thought, my mm. God. She's fucking, she's, you know, oh, my God. I, so we met over dinner in, in about 80, about 80, 88. And it was like, we'd got, you know, our address books were basically the same, really. And it was like, how come we both know all these people and we'd never met? And we met across across each other at dinner and we were just, and it was someone else's birthday. I can't even remember whose birthday it was, but Annie and I were just transfixed and we just, we were just, I swear, until I left for Thailand, we saw each other every single day. I, I she, and so when when she was doing a tour of Europe, I went to, as a sound guy. I know fuck all about doing sound, but but, the, <laughs> but she's like, I want you to come with me. Uh, uh, can you be my sound engineer? I'm like, yeah, sure. So we did a whole tour of her doing Europe, like uh, you know uh, France and Holland and Belgium, just so we could be together. Yes. And then and then we're within to a circle. I'm like, okay, you should do backing vocals with us and come on tour with us. So she did. Amazing. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, I love her to bit. She's uh she's a wonderful lady and so talented. And yes. her voice just gets better and better and better. Yes. Um, and she did a kind of some work with Crass, didn't she? In the Yes, she did. In in the early she moved from New York. Um, there's a great book called You Can't Sing the Blues When You're Drinking Milk. And she covers all of that where she moved from the Bronx in New York over to find herself in, in living in uh dial house with all the with all the anarchists yes so she did stuff with them and then she she lived she went from there to live in uh, uh adrian sherwood's shed and did God. stuff with all the dreads oh yes of course on you uh-huh. remember now annie oh. yes I know oh. she went from permaculture in Essex to. Uh... Mm, I know to a shed in Andrew. I love that <laughs> she lived in a shed. Oh my God! Her. Yes, God, that it's fantastic on you, sound sound. So as the eighties progressed, and suddenly you know, eighty-seven major moment in my life, the Smiths break up. Mm. All those bands I loved were mm. up because everyone has enough after five years. Because most bands have a five-year narrative, don't they? They get together, right, yeah, months yeah. honeymoon, first yeah. you know single, first album. Often, you know, the John Peel session, but then yeah. the second album, a bit tricky, and then it's like, oh. Oh. so. And then also the other thing is that there's the next wave of sixteen to eighteen year olds come along, and suddenly mm. the late eighties is all the. 
a lot of it is that dance scene, isn't there, with, you know, mm. um, ecstasy coming along with, you know, and there's yeah. the stone roses, and then you yeah. have the Seattle grunge scene. So how did you cope artistically at this stage without a band and suddenly, you know, on your own again? Well, so the band, we, we finished in 89. So we, we, we had a... The, the music scene was that bridge between indie and dance was happening and we were on it like before it was even happening. We, we were there. And then but then I went over to Bangkok and, and I, I kind of lived there, started living there. So I was so far away from everything that I was kind of cut off, you know. Yes. Um, and so. So for the first two or three years, I just basically lived in a country where I couldn't speak the language. I didn't know what was happening. And, and I got absorbed in, in all of that. Uh, also um, doing, doing a lot of drugs as well, because at that time they were just everywhere right. in Bangkok. It's since got cleaned up. So I got myself, it was wonderful. I, I, I traveled the whole country, absorbed myself in the whole culture. Uh, you know, was constantly reading books and had my little Walkman with music and then doing shitloads of drugs as well, but not not party drugs, like more insular drugs. Right. And Was and it so, kind of a psychedelic period here? In my head or in the world? No, in your head. No, it was the opposite. It was the total William Burroughs uh, insular down, downward descent. Oh, my but, God. Um, it was great. I loved it. it uh, but but it, it was enriched with kind of opium dreams. Yes. So right. I, I would have lo- loads of opium dr- dreams. You know where I'm going with all this, don't you? <laughs> uh, so so anyway, I um, so that I, I did get a habit. And so after two years of doing that, you, you you'll, uh, I, I kind of had a physical habit. Um, um, to, and then then somehow, God knows how. Uh, I met uh, a, a bunch of people, one of whom said to me, hey, listen, you did music, didn't you? I'm like, yeah, yeah. I said, oh, listen, my brother was doing this radio show and he's left. Why don't you see if you can get step in and you'll get a long-term visa and stuff to stay in the country? I'm like, yeah, okay. So I did. I went to meet this radio station and I got this job uh, on, on air and it was fucking amazing. This is like 19, 1992, maybe. Right. And uh, so before the Internet had happened. And so I I'm I get this job and it's literally for if you can imagine a Thai female John Peel. That's and I was the sidekick. So she'd be doing the show mostly in Thai and running the board. I'd be sat, sat, sat at the end of the desk and we'd be chatting in English and I'd, I'd we'd get the enemy and the sounds and all those papers flown over They'd take about a week to get there. So we'd be reading last week's news. So I'd go through it and I'd read, we'd talk about what's happening. And she was really into the British uh, Britpop, basically, before it became Britpop. Yes. Probably had. So it was things like uh, Manic Street Preachers and then also stuff like Dinosaur Junior and The Breeders and Pulp. And so all these bands. And because I knew what I was talking about, we got on really well. And this was on this was on national radio. It was a big show, and so, um, however, I had still got an addiction issues. 
So I was doing this long radio show and I was withdrawing on air and it was really, it was really tough. Right. And, and I'd reached a crossroads in my life and I knew I had, it was obvious. And, and so I thought either I can continue with, with the Burroughs dreams and all, all that, you know, <clears throat> go keep, you know, keeping my own head, doing the drugs and all that, or I could get back into the music scene and, and, you know, start something with radio. I knew I couldn't do both. I knew it. I just knew it. And I had to make a decision. So I opted for the, the to get back into the music. So I cleaned up my act. I, I, I stopped doing drugs. Um, how did you, how did you manage to do it with, you know, after so many years? William Burroughs. Right. Because this is where people like Will Self completely get, and, and, and me too, get William Burroughs wrong because everyone thinks that he glorifies heroin use mm -hmm. he doesn't if you read the books properly what burrows it's warnings it's 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 he he reveals the nature of addiction and the horrors of addiction as well but you have to really read it and one book in particular was the book uh, it was they published the burrows to allen ginsburg letters uh, that Burroughs wrote when he was when he was heavily addicted in Morocco, trying to get off off smack basically, mm -hmm. and and that book really helped me to place in my head the idea of addiction, what I was going through. It really helped me get get uh, overcome it, and I did. And so uh, by by getting back into the music scene and going through those books, I, I stopped doing it, and I haven't had a, a habit since. It it, it worked. My God, so there was no physical... Oh, my God, there was... Yeah, <laughs> it, it felt like the my bone marrow was itching and my mum was sweet at the time because um, one year when I'd kicked the habit, I went back to Barnsley. I would go back once a year, maybe twice a year. Yes. I, so I went back one year and my little mum, she said to me, I was, so I was totally clean and she went, ooh, ooh, your jet lag isn't as bad as it used to be, is it, these days? <laughs> <laughs> I was basically withdrawing from heroin in, in my bedroom upstairs and she thought my mum, little mum thought it was jet lag. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, it's not as bad. So, yeah, so I kicked that habit and, you know, I, I learned from it and um, and then... So then I proceeded on this. I was doing a radio show with this amazing lady, but then the station folded. But then I was headhunted by an even bigger radio station. And they said, listen, we love what you were doing. We want to give you your own, your own show every Saturday night, eight o'clock till 11 o'clock. You can playlist it yourself. You can play whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, I'm having this. So this was just before the Internet. So I had friends, my friend had a company, Warp Records in Sheffield. Oh, yes. So he sent me the whole catalogue over. And then I got other friends in the UK. They sent me stuff over. So I, I acquired all these CDs and, and records. And so uh, I, so I in my show, I would play stuff like uh, Our New Sound System, because I got all their stuff. I would play Square Pisher, Aphex Twin. But I'd also play stuff like Manic Street Preachers and Britpop that was happening. It would be this real kind of mishmash of, of, of stuff. But what it did for Thai kids is because they did, had no access to any of that music back then. Because mm -hmm. there, no, there was no internet. 
and the, the records like you know Massive Attack and Square Pusher, Aphex Twin, and you know Portishead, they would never make it over there until radio started playing them. So years later, I would meet all these kids that were like, "Oh my God, I cut your radio show was the first time I heard like you know Portishead or Massive Attack and stuff." So it was a real. And I love turning people on to that. Yeah, so, so you were the kind of equivalent of John Peel. People recorded your show, didn't they? And oh, my God. Maybe I, and I, I, didn't, I kind of don't think of it like that because they were already discussed. I didn't discuss. I mean, there was a few tie bands that maybe I did get into early, but they were all, I mean, they were happening in Rough Trade. I would go to Rough Trade and buy stuff there, but I didn't discover them in the way that Peel would. No, but you were on the but, zeitgeist, weren't you, at this stage? Yeah, oh, without a doubt, yeah. And and so that was amazing. And I and I did that show for and then I picked up a, a column in, in the national newspaper where I would review stuff as well. And I, I did that for like seven years. But towards the middle and end is when the internet happened. Yes. So by the end of it, by the end of the show, it was like, well, kids can tune into like uh, XFM and all these other stations now and you know, probably Peel. Uh, so there was less use for me doing it as well. Yeah. Um, um, so so I, I stopped doing that and I, then I moved into publishing and did a magazine with a nightclub there. Right. So what was this one called? This bit of inch? You're publishing. Uh, so, uh, well, I was I was doing that, but very quickly after that, I started DJing in, in the nightclub as well. And this was a really exciting time in music. This was about 2000 and I'll say one, maybe just after. Anyway, there was this scene which was developing in New York and London and Larry T was, was, was spearheading it in New York and people like, uh, who I love, Johnny Melton, Johnny Slut from Atomizer mm -hmm. and from the Batcave. He had a club called Nag Nag Nag. Oh, and, yes. And... Uh, it was Larry T that coined the phrase electro clash. And so what they were doing, it was like they were doing all the 80s vibe of music, but with a real fuck you attitude that it didn't have. It, was, it wasn't po-faced like in the 80s. Yeah. And, uh, and I just loved what, what was happening. So I, I approached this club in Bangkok and said, look, there's this thing happening. I mean, there was very few clubs in the world doing it, but... I kind of got onto it earlier um, and I said, look, let's do one in Bangkok. And this club had just opened and they said, yeah, we'll do it. So we did it there and then we did it at the Ministry of Sound in Bangkok. Uh, and it was an electro clash club, but it was quite difficult to get the new stuff back then because uh, vinyl would take weeks to get here and there was mm. a, a big import tax. There was no accessibility online. You could buy CDs, but you'd have to have them sent over. And the guy I was doing the club with, uh, he was a musician too. And he said to me, you know what? You've done music before. I've done music. Why don't we just make our own stuff and play it in the club, like just electro beats and stuff? Like, uh, and I'm like, yeah, why don't we get a little band together? We'll get a couple of Thai, Thai singers. I didn't want to sing this time. I yes. said, let's... Let's get like a, a Thai trans person to front it and, and, and we'll do this kind of real kind of out there um, electronic stuff. And so we auditioned two people that I knew. One was a Japanese, actually a Japanese uh, woman, girl, and then one was a, 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 this 
Thai gay guy that looked fabulous that I knew. So we auditioned them both. And uh, we got Peter Christopherson from Coyle and uh, from Ingrissel, because we were hanging out. He was living with me at the time. He came down to the, this audition, which we did in a studio. Um, and we didn't write a song for them to sing, to audition to, but we, we, got, we, we recorded a cover version of The Stooges, I Want to Be Your Dog. And then I got, I was working at a TV news station, editing the news headlines then. So I got these big head anchors to translate the lyrics of I Wanna Be Your Dog into Thai. <laughs> and, and we got them both to sing it and we were gonna choose one of them to become the singer. And then it was Peter Christopherson that said, you know what, get them both, they're both amazing. So then we had this band, which we, we had this band, which was one Japanese person, one Thai person, two English people. And and we couldn't. We wanted a name. And the thing about Electroclash, it was all like taking the piss out of everything. Yeah. So so we said, okay, let's come up with a name with an eighties sounding thing that is really shit. And at first we were thinking like maybe sushi or uh, so, so so an eastern word we use in the west. And then I went futon, <laughs> and we both. As I said it as a joke, and we both laughed and fell about laughing. Went fuck it. So we then went on for the next five years to have the band with the most embarrassing name ever. We were called Futon, which started as a joke, but we ended up getting the drummer from Suede, Simon, joined us. And he was with us for like maybe four years. Right. We, we ended up doing shows in all over the world, Vietnam, uh, China, Dublin, London, everywhere, France, Germany all over the fucking world <laughs> with its worst name ever for a band, Futon. So when you, because you did three out, four albums, Never Mind the Botox, Give Me More and Love Bites. These were on, were they all on rehab records? Yeah, well, yeah, they were, which was, uh, I learned from my previous mistakes and we released them ourselves. Right. So you <laughs> had, you had control. Yeah. And we licensed everything to like, we licensed it to a couple of, companies in Japan and to Universal Records in Singapore and then and then to a company in the UK we did a single with them um yeah Futon was fun it was great and did when was that kind of not only fun was it also kind of commercially a good one for you guys yeah yeah we got stuff on HBO used to use one of the tracks on one of their series we we as I said we did gigs all over the world I mean, it, it was it was great. We we picked up a lot of great stuff. Uh, Simon Napier Bell, you know the the man oh, yes. he 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 fell in. He saw Futon and he fell in love with the band. He 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 said, "I want to manage your band," but he really liked our manager at the time. He said, "So I'm going to let him do it." Um, but I want to write about you. So he wrote about us for the Sunday Observer and put us on the cover of the supplement. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And so sort of 2005, 2007, the band finishes. Is it because you've just had enough and we're moving on? It, it Yeah, it, we had actually. It, it, it's pretty much that's what happened. Uh, Simon Suede restarted. So he, yes. Simon was doing that. And then our bass player, she was Thai, uh, and she got a part in a big movie 
Uh, so she started doing that. And then that's when I also started editing this big magazine over there too. So our lives, so we, we kind of put it on hold and thought we'll come back to it one day, but we never, we never did. Yes. Yeah. So, so then as we sort of finished the sort of the O years, what happened? Do you still stay in Bangkok or do you make a bit of a... Uh, I move around a lot now. I'm like, I'm at the moment I've, I'm in New York. I've been here for a few months and which I love. And um, I still love London too. So I spend, you know, a lot of time in London, but always uh, I'll, I'll go back to Bangkok. I live back. I, I realized the other day that I've lived in Bangkok longer than I've lived anywhere else in my whole life, including the place where I was born. Which is amazing. The country, yeah. The country where I was born. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I kind of yeah, it's got a special place in my heart. Yes. So are you? I mean, musically, have you reformed into into yes. a circle? Uh-huh. We have, and we are. Uh, so we. What happened was, um, I, I I'm also doing a spoken word project um, called Thai Capsule, right. which is a visual spoken word project, and I, I released some of that uh, about a year and a half ago, and that came to the attention of Barry the other half of Into a Circle. And he he reached out and said, oh man, I really love what you've done. It's amazing. I'd love to do some remixes of it. And I said, yeah, okay. Here's, so I sent him the, the word, the, the files. And then we we both thought, well, this isn't kind of working as a remix. You know, it, it just didn't gel. Uh, and then we said, but you know what? When we broke up, we had an album worth of songs that we hadn't recorded. We'd played live, but we've never recorded them. Mm. So I said to Barry, uh, how about we we go and re- finally put those songs down uh, in the studio? And so he, Barry was like, well, he, let's just try one and see how it goes. And um, so we went and we tried one and bam, we, it was like we'd never been apart. We were already reading each other's minds as I would as I would be about to suggest something, he would do it and vice versa. And then I said, then we, we, Barry said, let's, what about writing something new as well? I had no intention of doing that, but I I said, yeah, okay, I'll I'll give it a try. And so the first song that we wrote together uh, became the song that out of my whole music career, if I could just only, have one song it would be that song it was a song it's a song called my frozen heart which for me is my take-home song if i never did anything else i'd be happy which is i'd only done that i'd be happy amazing that is incredible so did you and you wrote the lyrics for this yeah for my frozen heart it was it was a, a boyfriend of mine who passed away suddenly he died really suddenly and i couldn't I couldn't, it kind of ripped my heart out and I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. So for me, when something like that happens, I I kind of write my way out of it. So I, I, I kind of just started writing and writing and, and that came out of it. So for me, it's the most heartfelt. I'm from Barnsley, right? So I'm not a crier. I don't cry. If, if you know, I'm not one of those people that would, you know, cry in a movie. If something happens, I generally don't cry. Um, however, my my boyfriend was the total opposite. Like, you know, I would look over at him and he'd be crying. He'd be tears streaming down his face and I'd say, what's happening? It would be some song on the radio. <laughs> <But it> would, <laughs> and he was a real crier. But it, it, 
uh, and it's kind of amazing because whenever I sing this song, always I have to, I'm holding back the tears. Yes. It's, it's bizarre because it's not my natural state. I mean, where I grew up, you didn't cry. And, you know, it was a sign of weakness. And maybe that was drilled into me as a young kid. But I, for, for whatever reason, I, 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 it's very rare that I would physically, cr- you know, cry tears. Yes. But uh, later on in the year, you've got live dates as well, haven't you? We have, yes, definitely. We have, uh, we're doing this uh, festival in Whitby uh, um, on October, I think it's the 30th. Uh, with uh, Mark Almond's The Restless are headlining, and we're we're on with with them. And then on November the fourth at uh, Oslo in Hackney, we've got our own show, which I'm so excited about because that one we uh, probably both shows will have the films, but at the moment we're putting all all the films together, so we will be screening those at the same time. And we've got uh, Johnny Slut, Johnny Melton. From Nag 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 is going to DJ before us, which I'm over the moon about. I'm really excited because he's a really great DJ too. And we'll be doing we'll be doing Into Circle songs. We'll be doing the songs that we've just released on the on the cassette, and we'll be doing some old songs. But it's not going to be one of those shows where it's all the old songs. No. It's got a lot. It's going to be a lot of new songs. The bulk of it will be new songs, uh, which I'm kind of really excited about. Because uh, for me, I, di- I didn't want to get back together and just re- reproduce ev- everything we've done before. Yes. Some artists do that and some do it really well. And that's great for them. For us, I wanted it to be doing songs that we hadn't committed to, to doing in a studio and new songs. And then within that, we will throw in a couple of old ones, but it won't be... It won't be all old songs for sure. Yes. Well, I think we've got a lot of bands. I'm thinking of the Nightingales from the Midlands. I think mm. they just prefer doing their new songs because they? they can't be bothered to learn the original songs that they did 40 years ago. It's quite, they can't remember the chord changes and they like those, those lyrics were written when I was 20 or I was 18. Well, so you, I, you know, the, the great thing with Into a Circle is because we were always quite timeless we didn't we didn't hook on to any particular genre or any time thing. So the, the songs that I'd written back then, my 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 rule was I wasn't going to rewrite all the lyrics. Right. Uh, and it's it's been fucking insane because there are some we do a song called Stitches. At the time when I wrote that song, I had no idea what it was about. I knew which words and which lines worked and which didn't. And I knew it, how it should be. I had no idea what it was about. But 30 something years later, I now can see exactly what I was writing about. It's insane. It's, it makes sense. Wow. It, yeah, that was an amazing discovery. Yeah. Really, really amazing discovery. So, so yeah, so I, I, they, they will be, they'll be, they'll still keep that, that pure form that they had back then. But because technology's changed, there'll, there'll be some adaptation. But mostly the ones that we wrote back then are largely recognisable and yeah. just the same. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I suppose what, what I'm really impressed with, you've got an amazing website, haven't you? Is this something uh, that you... No, if anyone wants one, 
speak to my friend Pacman. He's he's a, an amazing IT uh, hacker guy in 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 Thailand. He he worked with Peter Christopherson from uh, Psychic TV from in Bristol too. Right. Uh, he's he's a genius. He just puts together these amazing. I'd love to take the credit, but I'm not going to. It's him. <laughs> he built that website, and he's got such a an eye on for everything. He's it's great, isn't it? Yes, and it is. He, he built my previous one, which lasted ten years, and people were still saying, "Oh, you've got a great website." When it was ten years old, <laughs> he, he's really good. So, if anyone wants uh, a website, contact you and then me. Yes, absolutely. No, it's it's impressive. So, uh, it sounds like you're you've been you're as creative now as you've ever been in your life. Have you got other? Pro- I can't do anything else. <laughs> I, can't, I can't. I've got no fucking trade. I can't do anything else. All I do is. You know, I mean, I did have the two years off when I took drugs, but apart from that, it, it's what I it's what I have always done, really. Write, do music, uh, make things. I can't do anything else. How did you cope with the two year lockdown period? I loved it. I'm one of those really annoying people. I didn't want it to end. I was absorbed in my tie capsule project, which right. is, it which is involves spoken word music recording but also there's painting there's little models there's these whole things that I built and I spent I spent two years largely doing that and then working on into circle stuff with Barry uh remotely did you sort of do a lot of archiving during that period did you sort of find yourself sort of getting kind of sorted out with your bits and pieces that needed to be done I did it before I did um, <laughs> Uh, um, traveling around so much like I do I digitized everything I owned about 10 years before the uh the lockdown so Mm -hmm. I I already had it digitized and and on hand which is great so I can pull out images from like 30 years ago and I would scan I I learned this from Genesis Peorage Jen would do things like this he'd keep everything he'd scan everything he'd archive everything so I'm, I'm I'm I do that too so I even have like, you know, ticket stubs from 10 years ago, scanned and digitized. Right. Well, yeah. I, I like your style. I mean, you can't archive enough in this world, can you? But th- there is one fault, though, I, I, and this is crazy, that I don't, I can archive it, but I don't file it. So it's all over the place. It's like a haystack of information. <laughs> so yeah that's a bit so silly. can you just explain what the Thai capsule exhibition is then is this okay so so basically my my large body of work is I'm writing this uh, uh, a book and this book is it's kind of influenced by my life somewhat so basically the book starts off in the 70s in in Barnsley and it's these three teenagers uh and they they have all these adventures in the 70s, discovering a bit of punk and stuff. But then they end up in Bangkok in the mid 80s, the early 80s, mid 80s. And all this weird and wonderful stuff happens to them in Bangkok. Now, uh, it, there's a girl, a fabulous, amazing club kid girl, a gay guy. And then there's this other like straight guy. The girl, the girl and the gay guy are in a hotel room and she notices under a wardrobe is a, a rusty old metal box. She fishes out the box and she opens it up. Inside this box is a cassette tape, because it's the 80s, a book, and weird and wonderful little animist uh, 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 things, like uh, little statues and things. 
and some old photographs. Uh, there's also a photograph of them in the box. Right. And so she's like, so she turns to the, the, the guy and she's like, oh, you're fucking with me. You put that there. And he's like, no, no, I didn't. But then in on the cassette and in the book are these stories. And it's basically like Thai animism on acid. So it's all these stories of spirits and things. And then these spirits gradually come into their life too. And it all becomes this like uh, separation of reality and you don't, you, you don't know what's happening. And so I basically decided that I would make a limited edition of 60 tie capsules in steel boxes. Right. So they're, they're these big steel boxes. Inside each one is a cassette tape, a book. But then there's original photographs that I've found throughout the years of, you know, going through old, old Thai markets and stuff. And there's also spiritual statues and weird and wonderful stuff. But and they all have this distinct smell. Like I, I got um, a nose in to, to design a scent for them as well. Right. So it's multi-sensory. You see it, you hear it, you smell it, and you touch it. And then on top of that, I, I then co I'm collaborating with Thai artists, and they are on various platforms like sculpture, photography, and painting. They're interpreting the stories that are in the that are in the book in the box. Right. And this will also all eventually appear as an exhibition um, with the Thai artist's work, with my work, with spoken word performance, and probably with music. Yes, uh, this, and this, is, this is a multi-dimensional yeah. project, isn't it? So yeah. is this quite different then to, you've got the Thai capsule, then you've got yeah. spirit inclusion, spirit delusion. Is yeah, this that, that's the book. The, the, that's the book that's the book that appears that that they find in the box right it's called spirit inclusion spirit delusion and those stories are ones that i wrote um based on when they're not really because i didn't want to appropriate stuff so i made it all up yes so, so like there's a bird called the shadow bird which doesn't exist in thai culture at all the only thing that does is is the five-eyed monkey uh, but that's a very, it's actually an Indian thing, interpretation of the god Indra. Yeah. Uh, apart from that, not everything is completely made up. Amazing. Jesus. Oh. Right. So on this, on this page, on your website, the Thai capsule has all the, the capsule, the spirit inclusion, mm. delusion, and also yeah. the collaborators. That's all one package and you just get... Yeah, so I so the actual tie captures themselves because I got tie model makers to make some stuff and and there's original old photographs and there's so they're quite expensive to put together and so and there's only sixty of them so they they come with quite a, a you know a price tag which not everyone can afford I, I didn't want it to be exclusive like that because they're like five hundred quid each. Mm. Uh, I wanted to make some stuff that people that don't have much money can have too. So I, I sold, I, I, was, I sell some books separately and then I have some things like little patches, which cost like seven quid. So like, I just wanted to make it something for everyone. If they can't get a tie capsule, maybe they can get something else. Yes. And then the recordings, I'll make them free. Uh, the, uh, they, if anyone wants the, the spoken word recordings, they can have those for free. Um, yeah.
God, that's an amazing project. That is an amazing kind of work. And then an exhibition to follow up. Yes, I I was, I almost did it at the end of uh, last year. And then the gallery that was going to uh, stage it, they, they, the landlord uh, and the gallery had an argument, so they shut down. So it didn't happen. So, and then this year is all about into a circle. So hopefully next year I can get the uh, the Thai capsule exhibition because it involves Thai artists it's yes. not just me it's kind of a big thing as well so hopefully next year I can team up with a gallery or a curator or some person that can help me bring it together because that's it's not what I do really with you know do you feel uh, this is a period in your life that you this is one of your most creative kind of you know journeys um uh honestly it, it doesn't seem any different to like when we were doing gigs with get with with into a circle and we were doing you know books and and pictures and stuff like that and i i um maybe there's more output at the moment because i can it's easy to put stuff on on a digital or a social media site yes. whereas before you'd have to do it in letter set and then slap down to a shop and have it photocopied and then the process was 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 a lot took a lot longer now it's a lot more it's a lot instant it's a lot more instant so you can get more output uh, yes and i guess you're also able to be quite fluid about where you're living as well yes I, I do, which is why, you know, it has advantages and disadvantages. It's like when I spoke about having stuff digitized, I knew that if I was traveling around, normally in the 80s, I would travel with a filing cabinet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. Filing cabinets would come with me. But now my final final cabinet is a little hard, two terabyte hard drive. Yes, this is true. The, the filing cabinet of hell. Trying yeah. to get it up the stairs was good. If you could have said something like to your 16, 18-year-old self, is there any kind of words of wisdom you would have whispered in their ear, even if they ignored you? I just wondered if you ever said anything that you thought, yeah, I wish I'd known that. Um, you know, I there's very little that I would do differently. There really is. Um and and I don't have any disagreements with, I can't, you know. No, I, I, I would just say, get ready for a fucking amazing ride and just do everything you've done. It There's no regrets. There's nothing. Even the drug druggy years, I learned a lot during that as well. I don't recommend it if anyone's thinking of doing it. <laughs> that was then. It, times were different. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I, I know what I would say to myself. You're going to put all your T-shirts in a bag in the bottom of your wardrobe. These In that plastic bag will be panache into a circle, getting the fear T-shirts and seditionaries T-shirts and sex, the shop T-shirts, yeah? Maybe five of those, mm-hmm. right? You're going to put them in a bag in the bottom of your wardrobe Tell your mother not to fucking throw it away. <laughs> she did. She. I came back one year from Bangkok and I'm like, mom, where's that bag of T-shirts that was in the bottom of the wardrobe? And she's like, oh, I, I cut them up and used them as dusters. Yeah. I'm like, mom, those were seditionaries. 
McLaren Westwood t-shirts, they worth loads of money. And she went, oh, they were rubbish, they were old, and they were rude. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that yeah, generation I mean, loved dusters, didn't they? Right. Yeah, I would say, that's what I would say to myself. Don't, that, that's the only thing I regret. Yes, that's that that's that's good actually. Well, anyway, <laughs> this is brilliant. Well, thank you ever so much for this. I've thank got, you, I've, David. But yeah, this is great. And if you want, I could always um send you the link, and then oh, you could... please. Oh no, I'd love that. I'd love that. Where where are you by the way? Where are you based? We're I mean Nor- we're in Norwich. 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 Norwich, dear old England. Yes. I bet you hate people saying the sale of the century, don't you? I don't want no, no, not at all. Normally, people <laughs> talk Alan Partridge. Really, that's the, oh, oh, really? See, uh, I'm showing my age now, aren't I? So Alan Partridge, and he had, um, yes, that's where he's broadcast in his kind of world. His, um, his Norwich and this. Where is Norwich? Because I, I, I get it confused often with Northampton. And Slow Tie is from Northampton, isn't he? Yes. Okay, yeah, okay. And Bar House were from Northampton. Yeah, they they were definitely in that area. Who's uh, from Norwich, aside from you? Well, interesting enough, musically, it's not fabulous. I mean, we had the Farmer's Boys. Okay. The Hicksons, Spirit. uh, Oh, yeah, I remember the Hicksons, Charlie Hickson. No, Charlie. Yes, that's right. And Serious Drinking and... um, so that was kind of very much the 80s and then the 90s. It was never, we never had that kind of wow music scene like a lot of places do. I mean, Cherry Red Records couldn't put together a compilation of Norfolk bands. <laughs> that that would have been, you know, fantastic. But yes, the Sheffield one, you would probably kind of, I'll have to tell you who, who's on it. Yeah, I, my favourite bands at the time there were like I'm So Hollow and uh, um, what's the band that became ABC? Fuck, what's their name? Brain freeze. Uh, oh God, I forgot their name. It's it's with uh, Martin Fry and Stephen. I've got their record as well at home. I've, uh, vice versa. Vice versa. Wait a minute. Vice versa were amazing. Artery, artery, vice versa. Bendino packed. I'm so hollow, and the stunt kites. Yes. Oh, right. So wait a minute. I've just got their press release up. So it's dreams to fill the vacuum. And um, yes, the Human League. Uh, yeah. Did you say I'm so hollows on it? The prams. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Hobbies yeah. of today. Um, Ice Cream Brothers, B Troop, Negatives. Oh, my God. The Negatives. We, we were on a record with the Negatives. The yes. The uh, the toy shop pulp are on there. In the pulp ne- on there. Yes, they I thought the... they were later. Yes, there was also wow. another. Oh no, because the pulp, uh, pulp had a whole period in the eighties with um, mm. on Fire Records. Right, everyone has AC Temple are on there. Um, Heroes of the Beach. Um, yes, you'll have to just. I will. That I I can't wait to stunt, see that one. Stunt kites. Stunt kites. Yeah, I love. I put them on in Barnsley. Heaven I brought them 17. over to Barnsley. Wow. <laughs> Oh, gosh, I need that so much. You do. You need to get this copy. Yes, you'll yeah. love it, actually. They will, so I guess it's a period of um, 1978 to 1988. So there you go. Wow. I was there in about 78 until 81. Clock DVA. Yeah, yeah, they were amazing. Oh, the Dance Society are on there. What? What? Which track? Um, I played on one, but I wasn't credited. There's no shame in death. And dolphins, actually, too. But they didn't give me a credit, fuckers. (laughs) 
Oh, um, they've got one called Dance Stroke Move, the Dance Society. No, I didn't play on that one. No. no. Um, yes. Tree Band Story in the Nursery. Oh, yeah, I remember in the nursery. There you go. Um, yeah, so it's all beautifully put together. So, um, oh, I, I will have to um, check that out because there's going to be loads of memories there for sure. Yes, Kilgore Trout. Wow. Sedation. But my band uh, at that time, had the, we, we were very young. We were like 15. But we, I thought we had the best name ever. The, the, it was the letter Y with a question mark. And Oh, and it's it, on here. No. Yes, letter Y, end of act one. Oh, my God, that's me. On I'm not singing, but I'm playing Wasp Synthesizer. And it was funny because uh, we played one show, and we got a review, and I got really excited. And then the review totally in Melody Maker totally slagged us off. And then it said they had a dwarf of a girl on keyboards. Which was which was me, and I was so upset at the time. But this is like, it. Oh my god! Yeah. Oh my god! That's fifteen-year-old me on Wasp synthesizer. Oh my god! One day you'll get a, you'll get a royalty check for ten pound for that. Oh yeah, if yeah. God. <laughs> so they've done a good job finding all these bands, you know. Yeah, Cherry Red are great, aren't they? They're they, great archivers. So Peter Hope and Jonathan Pod, Podmore. Yeah, Kitchenette. They, they were really good, Cherry Red, because when I when we reformed into a circle, I contacted them and I said to them, Hey, listen, you're on Spotify because abstract, very cheekily, so the whole of our stuff to Cherry Red without asking the band or giving the band anything, not one P. And which I'm fine. I don't have any resentment to Cherry Red at all, this business. But they were really lovely. And they said, oh, we, we don't know anything about that. But, so, you know, and I said, listen, can do you mind if I take over the Spotify account? You can have them. I don't want the, the royalties, but I want to manage I want the name so we can put our new stuff up there. And they were like, yes, without a doubt, you, you can, and gave me all the, the, the stuff. They were very sweet. They didn't have to do that. No. They were really, they, you know, I, I thought that was kudos to them for like, you know, recognizing that as well. Excellent. That is so good. They'll have actually, because they've also they also sent me the booklets. I wonder they 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 document all this kind of stuff really, really well. So wait a minute, you're track you're you're track 18. What have you it would got? be I, I think my name was something like Paul Hertz or something like that. Act one certainly was the end of Act One, the end of time. This was written by a guy called Paul. <laughs> Paul Gil Martin. Oh my God, that's not true. He was the drummer. I mean, the the guy who should be credited, but he actually didn't write it. But was oh, oh no, he he wrote the piece. He's written oh, okay. a little okay, gotcha. a little piece about the band. Yeah, just to say, you know, who you were. Oh yeah, he's lovely. He's the drummer with the Dung Society. Lovely man. It but, says, I would like to take this chance to credit Marcus, our manager and owner of Pax yeah, for all yeah. his endeavours on our behalf and having his finger on the pulse of this interesting, unique and inventive scene. 
Oh, fantastic. So there you go. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> God, that, thank you for that. I didn't, I had no idea that it'd come out. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I love that. Oh my God. Who would have no. thought it all these years later? All those years later, it's there. It's brilliant. Well, no, I mean, Cherry Red are, you know, kind of fantastic like that. So mm. there you go. You'll, yeah, have to, yeah. you'll have to check it out. I will. I, I'll reach out to them when I get back to the UK. Yeah, go and see Matt. He's the PR guy there. So he'll. Oh, is he? Okay. Love. Yeah, I'll do that. Fantastic. <laughs> Yeah. He'll give you a little box set, I'm sure. Oh, fantastic. Oh, bless. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, thank you ever so much for oh, this. Thank you, David. It's been amazing. I, I kind of love, I, I love doing um, podcast stuff anyway. Yeah, well, that's great. Okay, well, look, thanks a lot and take care thank and you. I'll take keep care. in touch. Okay, see you yeah, later. Please do. Send me your details and stuff. We'll, I'll be back next week, so we'll keep in touch. Yeah, definitely. Okay, okay. see you. Okay, have a good day. Bye-bye. 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 Yes, indeed, dear listener, that is me in conversation with Paul Hampshire, also known as B, musician with lots of bands that we were just talking about. So there you go. Anyway, if you want to uh, contact me, which would be marvellous, I know, I sound so needy, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, these have all been archived. You can find those on um, Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, I do believe. Anyway, quality stuff. Um, so I'm going to say goodbye, but I will play you this track that um, he was talking about, which is an absolutely beautiful song. Have a great week. Stay safe. This is Frozen Heart. My frozen heart Time slips away Brains of sand in my the day you went away you burned right in my heart my frozen heart Touch your face around my fingers through your
Time slipped away, grains of sand. 